Riverhead Books presents Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, a podcast with Marlon James and Jake Morrissey. There is something very rich in tearing a book apart. I don't want to spend my eyeballs on these 300 pages. You really don't have to read any novel, except maybe Moby Dick. I'm stunned hearing you say that. The first book I got was Journal of a Plague Year. The feel-good book of the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen. I know. I'm a reverse size queen when it comes to literature, I guess. <laughs> okay, I love this more and more. Hi, guys. This is Marlon James. Welcome back again. Or welcome, if this is your first time, to Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. And I'm here once again with Jake Morrissey, because who else am I going to talk to? And we're going to talk some more smack about dead authors and their books. We certainly are. And we know it's been a while since we've been able to sit down and talk about books and authors with each other. But we have been busy. Marlon wrote a book that I edited, and that took a minute or two. And then there was this pandemic thing. So now that the book is done, we figured we'd take a couple minutes to talk about some more books that neither one of us has actually touched except as readers. So this time we want to talk about our favorite powerful female characters in literature, the badasses we remember and why we remember them. So Mr. James, as somebody who has actually written powerful female characters, I want to know what you think makes a good one. God, what a loaded question to ask a male author. I was just going to say, please use both sides of the page if necessary. <laughs> um, I use some historical, some historical background about writing women characters. I remember years, years, years ago, and I've, I've I've told this story before in some of the formats, where I was at a writing retreat. This was years before my first novel came out, and I wrote sections of what would become my first novel, and the writer Elizabeth Nunez, who totally endorsed me naming her in this, read it and she was like, you know, you're you're a pretty good writer, but you don't have a clue about women. <laughs> Which was not false no. at all for many reasons that would later become apparent by subsequent articles <laughs> I've written. <laughs> but it's I and I remember because I did what everybody does when men get called out. I'm like, I have a mother. Oh, okay. So you defended yourself by... By naming all my family members right. who were female. Right. Sound like a Republican, you know. But, you know, but then she asked me, she asked me how many women have I read? And it says something that I could name the number. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all dead. Right. But the, 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 the point I'm getting to is that she could tell my writing of women or whoever I'm going to write suffered from not reading them and not reading women. So do you think it had to do with with what you were what you were writing about them, what they sounded like? No. What, what I, was it that what was it do you think that she realized what what did she notice? She wasn't believing them. Yeah. And I thought, is it because of the things they were doing? Because that novel was pretty magically realistic in a way, although I hate that term. Uh, so is it because they were doing crazy shit? It's like, no, keep the crazy shit. Right. The crazy shit is fine. Right. I'm just not believing anything they say or do or what they believe. I'm not believing them. And I thought it was, you can you can know, you can have as, as many sisters as you want. There are certain things, and I've come to realize this as I teach creative writing, learning how to write women, you're only going to learn by reading books written by women. So you, go, you, you do that, you go do that, and what did you think you learned? I learned that whatever these characters do have to be grounded in not 
not necessarily the plausibility, but in their own reality, mm-hmm. I think. And that they, they, there has to be context and there has to be something behind their actions, whatever those actions are. You can't just have a character kill their children. The character kills, you know, Seth in Beloved, um, you know, kills their children for a reason which you can't totally dismiss. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one thing I got from it, that regardless of what your characters do, you should leave you should leave the reader with a, with the view I think that you can't totally you can't dismiss them you can't disregard even when they do terrible things you have to still have the sense of of um one of agency mm-hmm. of the sense that they have the keep keep capacity for change even if they change for the worse some sort of you know if not internal conflict and certainly some sort of internal process. And you also, as the writer, have to make sure you're, if you're not embodying these characters, and not every writer can embody a character, at the very least observe them in a way that gives us everything we know, instead of just, um, Jane Smiley said this about Heart of Darkness, but I've used it for everything since. Um, instead of basically projecting your fears and desires upon a character and then reacting to them, mm-hmm. which is 99% of the female characters that men write. And is that for the... And this is not the point of this of mm-hmm. this episode, but is that lack of insight on men's part, or do you think they just we as men don't think about women in that way? I think it's both. I think it's it's but it's what you know. I mean, you know, you, the, the the person with a sexist impulse, a racist impulse, isn't that far behind. Mm-hmm. Their their black characters are probably written with the same broad, dull strokes. I think it's a refu- I think it's a choice, and I think it's a choice that for a long time, nobody would call it out on. You know, we we can talk all we want about how great the novels of the Latin boom are, mm-hmm. and they are great. Good luck finding a real woman in any of them. Yes, I'm even including Marquez, <laughs> who I adore. All of them. Good luck finding a real woman. But nobody's we, the, the first person to bring that up was a writer from the Latin boom, Jose Donoso, mm-hmm. who said it. Says there, so he says the one tragedy of all of us: none of us wrote a woman. Okay, so this makes sense to me. So you, so you are, you take this advice, and where do you? Who do you read? Where do you go? Who do you pick up to say I need to find? I need to find out what women sound like what women are like on the page uh well of course i mean it goes without saying yes. tony mars and tony mars absolutely and then tony mars yes um but i also read uh, iris murdoch mm-hmm. um i read muriel spark um gloria naylor terry mcmillan mm-hmm. and all the books are coming in my head cisneros well i mean this is interesting to me because they're all for lack of a better term you know, sort of modern. It's not as if you said, oh, yeah, you know, it was Jane Austen. It was it was the Brontes. It was, you know. But isn't it funny, though, that that that, that was my defense when she called me out. I've read all the Brontes. Right. I read all the Jane Austens. Right. Right. That, that I was, as I said, yeah, I've read, but they were all, one, they were all dead. Yep. But I also, you know, I, I mean, a serious reader, a serious scholar could go, but did you read them, though? Because there is a lot of a lot of what later became feminism broached in both in both um, Jane Eyre and Agnes Grey. Mm-hmm. Sorry, well, not Agnes Grey so much. Tenant, tenant of Wildfield Hall, right? Who's Anne Bronte? Yeah, uh, you know that a lot of. I mean, we could go on about how wise, how smart Jane Austen right. 
um, Jane Austen was. So a lot of that made me even reread those. Mm-hmm. So if you if you kind of approach characters differently, having sort of gone through this part of this sort of evolution, I mean, mm-hmm. as a as a as a reader and a writer, so as a reader, talk about. I mean, I've got obviously my mm-hmm. uh, thoughts on powerful female characters that sort of stay with you in a way mm-hmm. that's that's beyond them, you know, being a character in in a great swashbuckler or whatever. Mm-hmm. What do you look for? What do you what well, like? What stays with you in terms of 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 characters, female characters that you find memorable and Important. I, um, the ones who change, the ones who learn, the ones who surprise me, and the ones who disappoint me. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones who... I'm tempted to say go through this arc, but that to me sounds like we're using male terms. You know, it's, it's, it's like she goes through a picarous like Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I mean, you know... She has a very Homeric uh, uh, saga. I like One of my favorite female characters of all time is a wife in Mrs. Caliban. She doesn't go anywhere further than the grocery store. Right, exactly. That's a great novel. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of my all-time favorite female characters. I, you know, I, I, but I do think there is this sort of, there is this journey, even if the journey is an epiphany. I don't talk about short stories a lot, but Evelyn in um, Dubliners, mm-hmm. um, you know, does that, does that for me. And you don't, I don't think of James Joyce as, oh my gosh, this guy is brilliant at writing women. No. I mean, he's better than a lot. Well, I guess my point is, I, my favorite of the James books is is the Dubliners mm-hmm. or Dubliners. Dubliners, yeah, yeah and, the um, Dubliners, yeah. The Dubliners. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think one of the reasons I like it is the fact that it, it and you were, when you talk about Muriel Spark, I think mm. she does this exceptionally well. It's like finding a very sort of looking very narrowly at something, but going very deep, almost with a, like a needle. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think those stories, the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Dubliners are um, really, really, for me, really, really effective. Mm-hmm. But there is, a, you know, there is, a, I can't remember her, her his, the name of his wife. There is something in, in the, the, the dead does some, something that really, male writers really hint at with female characters is of a previous life. Yes, exactly. Show me, yes, show me what mm-hmm. happens what they're like before you mm-hmm. meet them on the page. You rarely, you rarely see that, right. and I think that's interesting. As for these, the, the, the women I thought of for for this um, list, I had some honorary mentions who I don't really want to go into because everybody talks about them. Everybody talks about Lizzie Bennet, including me. There's nothing wrong with talking about Elizabeth Bennet. Nothing wrong with it, but, but, but there are at least seven other podcasts where I mention <laughs> Lizzie, <laughs> Lizzie Bennet. Um, of course, you know, it's, it's, people are going to think it's in my contract that we cannot have a podcast where I don't mention Toni Morrison. I have no problem with you mentioning Toni Morrison. Um, She's a Sula piece, you know, remains. Sula, so I, I, I've talked a million times about her, but let me say this, which I probably haven't said before, that of all the female characters I can think of, Sula piece is the one that changed how I lived. Wow. A lot of them changed how I wrote, how mm-hmm. I read, and then I just enjoy, but Sula actually changed how I live my life. That's amazing. And it's just, it just, it. I don't know. I'm sure if you go deep on your family quoting this, but her death, her deathbed scene, which I think is one of the best, and and she's saying show to who, and me having this epiphany in my small little apartment in Jamaica, knowing what the hell I'm going to do in my life, and and realizing, oh my God, you actually can live your life without having to please other people. Never occurred to me. It just didn't occur to me. But that's as much as I'm going to say about Sula. That's the required time. No, I'm not being paid by the Tony Morrison estate. 
Um, other people, honorary mentions who, then there are people who, not honorary, this is not an honorary mention. Then there are people who people think are badass, but I don't. Like Lisbeth Salander. From the, the te- uh, Girl of the Dragon. Yeah. Te- yeah. Well, um, yeah, I get you. I get what you're saying. You're saying because she, I don't think she is either. But why do you think? Well, you know, and I and I say this sparingly because I also write novels where some horrendous shit happens. Bad stuff to women. happens, right? But I think I do think there's a difference though with this thing, and you see it in films as well, where you pile a ton of violence and cruelty on somebody, but they're a kick-ass girl. <laughs> So it's all better. Right. I, I'm right. not sure I'm buying that. Right, right. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm um there's something there is something I guess a little torture pointing. Okay, that's that's it. sort of where I'm landing on the the girl uh, and the dragon tattoos books mm-hmm. is in the sense that it's like all right, it's unrelentingly for me, unrelentingly grim mm-hmm. without any without um uh revealing to me something Mm -hmm. that revealing the humanity in a way Mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are people be like Jake you couldn't be more wrong about that and I may be wrong yeah and and I get what people are saying and a lot of people consider it a you know a very feminist novel right and I'm I'm not here to argue with that and I'm certainly not here to talk about violence and cruelty because I've written that Uh, (laughs) not the person to talk to be to criticize yeah Yeah. certainly but I, I do think there's a difference yeah um, with that, so so those are some of my mentions. So you know, the point of I thought of I, I thought I, I thought of um, you know heavy characters and light characters that stay like characters that I'm surprised stayed with me is like Mrs. Goering and Mrs. Copperfield in Two Serious Ladies. Oh, talk about that! I, I've that, well, I, people rarely talk about that. Talk I about. you know because everybody talks about um, when when we talk about the Bulls, Jane is not the one we talk about. No, that's very true. There are, there are a bunch of people who secretly think she was a better writer. I'm not sure I agree with that, but there are times when I do. So Two Serious Ladies, um, a book that's, you know, her only novel about these two women. Oh, I didn't know that it was her only novel. I think okay. she's written a little bit about the, these, these two women. Let me see if I, I, I remember it. That uh, the typical sort of bored housewifey types, but um, very much in a 19th century proper way. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, one is taken up, shacking up with all these women of the night, <laughs> the prostitutes. <laughs> and and the other, you know, sort of leaves her husband and is going off on these adventures. And you still think these are two prim proper ladies who are probably just like, I have had enough with yeah, this a- shit. Enough with it. Yeah, enough is enough. That's good. I haven't I haven't read that in a long time. I should read that again. I mean, I I, I mostly came to the novel because I really love the language so much. But the the in terms of um, you know, they don't slay any dragons yep. and they don't kill any such and such. But it says something that I still remember. You know, Miss Goring and Miss Coverfield. These these two little ladies who who um totally. I was going to say ahead of their time, but what I'm saying is unselfconsciously, you know, decided that their world was theirs and for theirs to define. And they, yes, and they chose it. Mm-hmm. They made their choice. That was one of the, I mean, that's, I remember thinking that it's like, okay, this is, you, nobody would have ever expected that they would have ended up doing, the, you know, living the lives they lead and doing the things that they did. Mm-hmm. But it's, but you're like, oh yeah, they decided to, as you said, kind of go out onto the streets. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember being um, shocked is the wrong word, but a little startled that mm-hmm. that I was reading it. I was 
made uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable. I was. I. I didn't. I didn't expect to clutch my own pearls to, <laughs> when the, when they went out and did and did what they did. Yeah. And, you know. So so it's it's like a, it's a credit to the characters in the novel that mm. you kind of got that you, that at least for me mm. generated that kind of reaction. If you know, if we ever revisit it, I'll probably forget if we would do. But if there if if there was a book I want to see a movie of. This would be one of them. Two well, series. Well, that's a good idea, actually. That's yeah. a, that'd be a good movie. Yeah, that is that is one of those books I'd want to see a movie of. Kind of a 19th century um, Thelma and Louise without yeah. without the car chases. Without the car chases, but it was it it's 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 two great roles waiting to happen. That's a good. That's a really good idea. I think uh, you know. I'll write it for a fee, Hollywood. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> He's totally available to do this because he has he's finished his book already. Uh-huh. All right, I want to bring up somebody who I am surprised that I actually thought of this, and the more I thought about it, the more it kind of stayed with me. Um, and I know this is going to make me sound like an English major undergraduate, and I no compl- really, I'm, I'm completely. Well, you've never sounded like that ever. I was going to say I'm completely not sorry that I do. So the one I'm bringing up is the wife of Bath. Wow, from Canterbury Tales. The reason I bring it up is I, th- I do think it's one of those old stories that actually deserves a reread. And if anybody who's listening gives a rat's ass, if you remember it at all, The Wife's of Bath Tale was um, – it's the story of a knight. She's, she's telling the story. It's the story of a knight in sort of Arthurian times who rapes a woman and, at court and, and is caught and is sentenced to death and to be headed by the king. And the queen and her ladies um, basically persuade the king to let them let the knight live if, over the course of one year, the knight can learn what women want most in the world. And if he learns that, he can go free. You know, the knight doesn't have much choice, so he goes out of the world to try to figure that out. And the sort of story is, you know, I mean, it's you know, kind of goes on and on. But the but ultimately, he meets this old, ugly woman. He's out of options, and the mm. and the old woman um, gives him the answer about what it is that you know, sort of women really want want or in their lives, which is what the which is sort of the question that that the queen and the ladies of court wanted answered. And the message is they want to be able to essentially have agency in their mm-hmm. relationships with men. And what happens is he comes back and lives and various other things have. I won't give too much away. But my point in all this is that it was a story in, I don't know, late medieval English um, storytelling mm-hmm. where, you know, basically the, the message is women want from men, w- women want to be treated like they people care about what they have to say. And, mm-hmm. and it's a remarkably modern take on a, you know, um, uh, or perspective. And I read it again recently about a year or so ago and I was if you can sort of wander through the you know the middle English or whatever it is it's a it's a remarkably modern story and it mm-hmm. stayed with me when this idea came up I thought okay this is something that this is a powerful woman um the you know the the old woman in the story um the wife of bath telling the story about mm-hmm. a knight and the and and the queen ultimately deciding in the end of the story that the knight gets to live. So it's these various all these women in this story sort of getting to getting to tell their own tale and live and and explain why they what they think basically how men can behave better toward them. Well, you may have you may have done what five teachers couldn't do, which is to get me to read Charles. <laughs> Well, I'm not saying you should read all the stories, uh-huh. but uh, as stories, and it was one of the it was one of the stories that the Canterbury Tales that stayed with me. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. 
I've, this, again, it's one of those, you know, Wife of Bath is, is again, one of those other archetypal characters in literature that people know of, even if they haven't read. Right, right. It's like Heathcliff. Okay, mm-hmm. you may not have read Wuthering Heights, but you know he's and this. Why would you want? And exactly, he's a guy with you know his his lanky dark hair in his face and his very brooding perspective as he goes out into the into onto the moors. I keep going. You know Heathcliff, you could get it, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> you know, or I'd have to get to the end of that book. I you're, I am not going to force you to get to the end of Wuthering Heights. Let me put it that way. I've listen. Tr- it's not for lack of trying. Oh, I've gotten there. It's not worth it. It's <laughs> not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, who else did you have in mind when, when this so question I, was, was raised? So the other person I thought of is a character who is more known for the film, and the film is fine enough, but it's it, it, people should check out the book. The book's the book. The name of the film is Jackie Brown, but the fil- the book is called Rum Punch. And it's Elmer Leonard. Oh, I've never read that one. And and it is about Jackie Brown. And it's Jackie Brown is a flight attendant who has a gun running boss. She's trying to get ri- get away from. Okay. I mean, yeah, Jackie ain't the most innocent person. Right, right. And I mean, and Jackie is, is you know, she is, you know, the years have passed. <laughs> That's right. But Jackie's still a bombshell, and Jackie's still the smartest person in the room. How did she end up in this flipping mess? Even Jackie doesn't know. <laughs> I hope Elmore does. That's all I can yeah. say. Yeah, and, and it's how she sort of, you know, she she, at some point, her gun running boss starts to classify her as a loose end who needs to be well, you know, yeah, cut loose, yeah, bye bye. And and so Jackie's facing a position to not just survive, but how does she go through all of these people people who under, underestimate her to come on top? It, you know, I mean, it's Elma Leonard, so you, it, there's never a dull moment, and the dialogue is just gonna, you know, it's like a brush fire. Yeah. Now, have now, have you seen the movie? You've seen both the movie and read the book. Mm-hmm. I guess really what I'm wondering because I'm there may be there may be ones that I'm bringing up here that that, that might be that might be different between the movie and the book is the move is the re, is reading the book do you get the sense of her as a sort of more sort of fully formed character yeah I I, I mean I, I I actually do think the film is pretty fully formed too and he made some changes because she's not just a patsy or yeah. a villain and, or, and, or a victim right, right and that you know you you yes she's a protagonist but you know, you, you've done some stuff you should not be proud of. <laughs> right. One or two things that maybe, you know, mom doesn't need to know about. Right. But how do you, and because people feel at this all the time, how do you make the flawed protagonist? Right. right. Um, somebody's like, no, you got some stuff you, you, you should not be proud of. Right. But we're rooting for you. Right. Well, one way is making the bad people even worse. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's true. Also, the thing, you know, they always say that, and, uh, you know, it's more interesting to write bad mm. people than it is good people. Is yeah. that true? People, are, you know, it, it's it's a long, it's a continuing argument. What's the best Elmer Leonard novel? Right. Um, this is definitely a contender. Really? Yeah. Okay. Good. For for in, you know, I, I mean, I, I haven't come to that decision which is best yet. Well, that's also, I mean, you could you got to read a lot of them to figure yeah, out yeah, which one is best. That's true. You could read a couple dozen. One of the ones I mentioned, and you are going to, I can already hear your teeth grating about on this one. Oh, I want to bring up, I want to bring up um, two women from the sort of same era. Mm-hmm. One is um, Lady Honoria Dedlock from Bleak House. 
and the mm. other one is Lady Glencora Palliser from the Anthony Trollope <laughs> Palliser novels. You just had to slip Trollope I just, in there I, somewhere. Yes, we want both. That's a surprise. If you're going to bring in Dickens, you get to bring in your Trollope. That's totally true. That's this. Okay, so these are two, um, you know, kind of mid-Victorian titles ladies from, from kind of two great Victorian novelists. And... You know, Lady Glencora was this beautiful sort of headstrong heiress who loved this unscrupulous bounder um, and was forced to marry the boring and better behaved um, Plantagenet Palliser, who eventually becomes the Duke of Omnium and Prime Minister. Plantagenet is his first name. Plantagenet is his first name. Pay attention. This will be on the final. Yes, exactly. So basically, over the course of their of their marriage, which is takes place over six books, Glencora learns basically to love Plantagenet, and over um, and they manage to sort of form a successful marriage, family, and kind of political partnership. On the other hand, we have Lady Dedlock, mm-hmm. who from um, Bleak House, who was also beautiful and harbors this terrible secret. Spoiler alert for you non-Dickens fans is that she bore an illegitimate daughter before her marriage to Sir Lester Black uh, Deadlock, and um, the young woman at the uh, who was who turns out to be a character in the novel Esther Summerson, mm-hmm. and um, so over the course of the novel, the, this woman who has power, prestige, position. Over the course of the novel, it becomes clear that all of those are in danger. When it becomes clear that it's what the secret is going to be revealed, she um, runs away. Lady Dedlock runs away and eventually dies in very Victorian fashion oh in, in the cemetery where her former lover was buried. <laughs> so this is a story about somebody – about two women who had over the course of, of the novels, the two you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages – kind of hold your attention and they and even though they're you know from ladies in society who have but it's they're they're very different in terms of sensibility but they but they do hold your attention probably more so than the main characters who come into and out of the novel mm-hmm. the you know lady deadlock is not the is not the protagonist nor is uh, glenn cora palliser necessary but a point i think both of them point to the fact that these women were so in my opinion, at any rate, well delineated by Dickens and, and Trollope, that they're like, oh, yeah, you want to know what happens to these women. And you're sorry, frankly, or mm-hmm. I was, when Lady Deadlock dies. Mm-hmm. So are these two people— Lady two, Deadlock pe- dies. Here's a joke. <laughs> well, you know, Pam Greer is not going to play either one of these characters. <laughs> but I do think, for me, they were kind of memorable in the way that they sort of held your attention and, and commanded your um, respect over the course of, as I said, uh, the length of both Bleak House and the Palliser novels. Mm-hmm. Also, one survives in the world that given another person doesn't. True. Yeah. Very it's, true. It's Very true. On that deep, almost gothic note. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let's go to something a little friendlier, yeah. maybe a little happier. Um, no. No? You're not doing no, that? You're not going there? No, I'm going pretty pitch black. <laughs> um... You know, I, I'm always cheating because I said I wasn't going to talk about Sula and then spend five minutes talking about her. So technically, that that she she's on my list. You're some of the characters also runs I thought of. We've been mentioned Tenant of Wealthy Hall. I really do like Helen Huntingdon. More so mm-hmm. than Jane Eyre. As a character. As a character. Yeah. I, I just can't get past the coincidences in Jane Eyre's life. Scout Finch. Okay. I'm not gonna get I mean, fifty if you're fifteen, sixteen, to kill a mockingbird is a mesmerizing novel. Yes. It still is a mesmerizing novel. Yes. Um and Scout is one of the Scout is I remember 
I was at the very I was at the right age to read that novel, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's a kids book. I don't think it is either. It's not a kids book. I don't know why I identified with Scout, but I did because she's nothing like me. And even when I read it, I mean, I mean, Scout is what six, seven? Yeah, she's young. And when I read it, I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is a certain a kind of loneliness to Scout and everybody in the book that I really that makes her eyes open wider than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Which made me kind of, I hate the term identify, because I, I usually scream at students when I say they don't ident- identify with a character. <laughs> it's like, who are you? <laughs> that character has to identify with you. <laughs> but I did. There's something, I'm, and I, I've never been able to really explain it. Well, the thing that struck me about To Kill a Mockingbird in that regard is that it, it because it's a small town in the South in a particular, it felt to me very isolated. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a small town in New England, and it was... It, you know, as a little kid, it it was it felt kind of cut off. I mean, we mm-hmm. didn't have, you know, we didn't have a Woolworths, where we didn't have a McDonald's. It was like you know these sort of small towns that are sort of exist in this very kind of constricted universe. And I think the fact that Scout, as you said, sees things that maybe other people don't, and is willing mm-hmm. to kind of accept things clear-eyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole sort of you know Boo Radley thing. Yeah, I would have been scared out of my mind. I was scared for her. Exactly. Like, God, but she, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and then when, you know, she discovers what Boo Radley mm-hmm. has been doing and it's like, it's a, for me, it's a, I think a, 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 she's a really memorable character be, and she, because she's so guileless, mm-hmm. she's like, I am who I am. This is it. And I'm not going to be hiding a lot behind mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Although that, that, that said, listener, that was one of my honorary mentions. <laughs> um, Janie Crawford was also one of my honorary mentions. Oh, I was going to mention so. her. Oh, but gonna... then you can talk about it. All her. right. Um, so the person I had, because I thought of badass, was Phyllis Nerdinger from Double Indemnity. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's... And I forgot I shared such a nerdy name because I'm so used to the movie. Now, that's the James the James Kane novel? James Kane novel. Because yeah. in, the, in the movie, it's Phyllis Dietrichson, which does sound hotter. Yeah, and it's Barbara Stanwyck. Phyllis is married to a person named Nerdlinger. That makes more sense. <laughs> When you right. when you when you read the book, yeah, you're 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 stuck with a nerd like Yeah, that. yeah. Um, what what I mean, the thing about Phyllis, the thing about Phyllis that um, is a surprises me sometimes, and I've read it. Last time I read it was I think maybe two years ago. Is she really is pure evil? Oh yeah, she's she. There's no there's no redemption. There is Phyllis. none. There is there is a great review that I think her name is Stephanie Kaznarek, a reviewer wrote about a different book. The author is living, so we won't mention. But she said that the thing about the femme fatale. The thing about the femme fatale is a femme fatale is a male creation. That's what's so great about them. Because they're not actually people. They're just walking embodiments of masculine fear. Oh, wow. Wow. And first I was like, thank God a female critic said that. <laughs> um, and it's true. And Phyllis, it's, it's, it's <laughs> oh, the poor film. I love the film, but the film had to pull back. Well, that's the they're thing. Like, we yeah. can't do this. Yeah. Either, either, either redeem her or give her a comeuppance. Right, exactly. And there's a kind of a comeuppance. Those of you who don't know um, Double Indemnity, Phyllis Dickerson. So, so Double Indemnity, for those who, who don't know, the story of Phyllis Nerdingler, a wife who is in, you know, I'm sure other people would call it a fine marriage. It's fine enough. But homegirl board. It's not enough for her. Right. And she realizes, one, she can take out a policy, insurance policy on her husband and then make the husband disappear. And she finds a perfect jackass to do that. Actually, he's not that stupid, but he's stupid enough. And, you know, she, you know, she, she, um, 
does this plot to do away the husband and get somebody to have to do it as well and they the everybody in the everybody in the book has either second thoughts third thoughts second opinions new perceptions but Phyllis <laughs> She's, she has no time for she second has thoughts. No time for that. You got no time for your remorse. You got no time because you think you're smart. You're going to be on to her, and in a way, it's open to interpretation. I do think in the book, in a way, she gets away with it. Well, yeah. Don't give too much away. But no, I mean, she, okay, she doesn't. Yeah, right. Exactly. But she certainly. But 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 it's Phyllis's fate is still as a result of Phyllis. She chose it, basically. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that is still in a way kind of, I don't want to say empowering, but it's still different from you met the you know the the the, the men of justice caught you and you right. got your comeuppance, lady. Right. She's not Jimmy Cagney or whatever. This no. is she's she's chosen. She basically she threw she gambled. She mm-hmm. she she threw the dice, thought it was going to work out. It didn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she is, you know, she is strong enough to go, okay, yeah. this didn't work out. She's not like, oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, she's she's unrepentant to the end. unrepentant to the end. And, it's, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love some I love some endless unrepentance. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, uh, Janie Crawford, and that, that's who I wanted to bring, talk about. She, that's a, a character from um, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the Zora Neale Houston, Hurston novel. What I like about her is she's confident, um, she's complicated, um, mm-hmm. she's wise enough to rem- to realize that people's cruelty toward her is not necessarily from anything beyond their sort of limited experience. Mm-hmm. And she learns. She does. She's been she's married three times. You know, the first husband was you know some married him you know for basically to to sort of live comfortably and, and basically for security. Her second husband was sort of a local operator in Eatonville, the town where the novel takes place. And it's, he's the mayor and he's a sort of a, and he, and he treats her like an object. And it's only when she meets her, when she marries her third husband, whose name is, which I, I like tea cake, um, <laughs> 12 years younger than she is. And that's when she sort of finds genuine happiness. But it's the sort of the story of this woman who is unwilling to settle for what men tell her she should, how she should live. And what I like about her, as I said, is she feels on the page real. She comes across mm-hmm. as kind of somebody I would be interested in hearing more about. Mm-hmm. Janie Croft is like the original sister girl. Oh. And um, the, the wisdom and stuff you learn from experience, but also from learning it the hard way. Yes. And also she doesn't feel, she doesn't, I mean, there are points where she feels bitter, but she doesn't come across as a bitter character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, okay, I get this. I understand this now. Moving on. Let's let's get this show on the road. The, yeah. I wrote this intro for a Toni Morrison novel um, recently, and that's all I can say about it. <laughs> um, but one of the things I found doing the research on, on, on Morrison is that, you know, when Sula and, um, and Blue SI um, came out, everybody kept saying, oh, my God, you're in a shot. You're, you're in the legacy of Zora Neale Hurston and blah, blah, blah. And we see so much of her in your work and so on. But a lot of people do that. Up to that point, Morrison hadn't read Zora Neale Hurston. I was just going to say, she's not, she was not exactly, I would imagine, a household name at the time. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's just, uh, up to my, I didn't read her until maybe my third book. Mm-hmm. And the point being, and I thought about it when I read Their Eyes Are Watching God, which a lot of people read way before me is that there are these writers, certainly for a black writer, who 
who you come across and they're important, but you actually come across them late. Mm-hmm. You, you you come across them late, but then you realize that in a way in a way you're in conversation with them all along. Yes, it's where being it's 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 a it's a, it's a I don't know if it's an influence is a sort of a novel's influence even though you haven't read them, or that the the concerns that these writers are talking about and the things that make our characters real haven't really changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's interesting you said that because the last the the last character I thought of was Dana Franklin from Kindred, the Octavia Butler mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. You know, it takes place in 1979, and she's living in California with her white husband um, when she is sort of suddenly, without warning, pulled back against her will, basically, to Antebellum, Maryland, mm-hmm. where she's um, basically there to save the life of her white ancestor. Mm-hmm. And so, and then she sort of figures out how to survive slavery and she figures out how to maintain her sense of self and autonomy. And she sort of goes back and forth between these times without really any warning to the point where at the, in the end of the sort of the last, you know, at the kind of moment when, you know, the, the novel reaches its climax, she goes back and forth. She loses her arm in the, in the sort of the last trip to the past and then and then back into the future, which sort of serves as this kind of physical manifestation of basically the, the damage that slavery has done to people. And for me, the, the sort of badass part of it is, is that it is, you know, the, all of this is against her will. And yet she sort of survives and figures out how to be a, you know, survive in when she's a slave, survive when she's back in, you know, uh, California as a, uh, you know, as a writer who's married to a white writer. It's this sort of, you know, there are many walks that she has to sort of walk mm-hmm. in order to kind of um, thrive as a as a woman, as a black woman, as a writer. And she manages to do it in a, in a way that is where, where all the shit is thrown thrown at her. And and the reader is is it's a it's a compelling story. But the more compelling aspect of it is how she survives and mm-hmm. what she's willing to sort of do. And and for me, that goes back to sort of hope again in the idea yeah. that how you work and how you live day by day, problem by problem, tragedy by tragedy. It's, um, uh, I think, a really sort of powerful book that – and I know I mentioned it before, um, but if you have not read it, you should. It's it's uh, it's worth the read. I think you, you, one thing is that I – you know, I remember um, reading Sona. It wasn't Sona and the Fury and um, – He's talking about Dilsey. I think there's just one line, Dilsey, or something, and it was, they endured. Yes. And I remember actually always being kind of pissed off by that line. Because? Because it was just such a, it was a summary or summation of a character that he didn't spend much time on and probably didn't care about. And I get it. It was a story about the Comstons, and I love Son and the Fury. Mm-hmm. But I think think the what makes characters... Indelible, because Dilsey's not indelible, because he never tried to, and, and it's not because she's flat. Mm-hmm. I still remember Mrs. Micawber. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, right. I, I I think there is a, se- you know, a sense with these characters that you have traveled somewhere with them. Yes. And that neither you nor them, neither you nor this character, these great female characters, these great any characters, neither you or them are leaving the places the way you entered it. Yes, you've been changed. Yeah, and I think that's what to me makes these, you know, makes the characters ultimately great. Make any character, mm-hmm. um, you know, great. But that's it for for this episode and. As always, you can let us know what you think at we read dead people at prh.com. 
And you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow Riverhead Books on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates on books by living authors like Marlon James. And we'll have links in the show notes to the books that we've talked about in this episode. So thanks for living. Well, thanks for living. Wow. All right. Wow. wow. That's the dead people thing, Freudian slip. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. And now go read some dead people. Listening to Marlon and Jake means my to-read list gets longer every week. Enter Libro FM. Libro FM lets me purchase audiobooks directly from my favorite local bookstore. I can pick from more than 185,000 titles, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. I get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But I'm part of a different story, one that supports community. And you can be too. Marlon and Jake Read Dead People listeners can get a special offer. Two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership. That's two audiobooks for just $14.99 with the code Marlon and Jake. Visit Libro.fm to get started. Now go read some dead people. Offer only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S.